because I can't speak to the period of leaving venture capital and wandering in the desert of my own soul without mentioning one of the most profound teachings that I ever uh, received, which in, in reading the stories of the Buddha basically boiled down to this. I know I am good because I am human. And only human beings of all sentient beings are capable of enlightenment. Now, and because I'm capable of enlightenment, I am fundamentally good. Now, there's a, there's a logical premise in there, which you have to believe in the capacity to go, to be enlightened <laughs> for the whole logic to work. But that, when I descended into that period of depression, um, which left me in a place of saying, fuck it, I'm out of here. And, you know, when I look at your success, when I look at Fred's success, when I look at, you know, all these pikers who came after us, I, I, I have to laugh at my own, like, what am I, an idiot? You know, why did I? But on the other hand, I really wouldn't have had it any other way. Because what I learned about myself from that time period, that I am fundamentally good, even though every week I struggle with the question of, am I a good enough man? Am I a good enough father? Am I a good enough partner? Am I a good man? Even though I struggle with that question, almost always I can find that resilient place of, oh, right, I'm a good person. So this is a sort of roundabout way of getting to your question, which was, what happened? Well, what happened was, I got whacked on the side of the head with a two-by-four. Or the way I often think about it is like my soul reached up and grabbed me by the throat and said, not now, motherfucker. Mm -hmm. You are sitting and you are going to deal with the stuff that you have denied in your own life. And you're going to sit still until you figured it out. And it wasn't about other people. It was about me not being able to face myself anymore. And out of that experience, I took the skills and insights and capacity that I developed as a boy to survive. And every day I try to make somebody else's life a little easier. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. I'm Dan Putt. When I was going through my coach training, one of the things that I heard consistently over and over and over again was that the client was always to remain the focus. No matter what, don't do anything to draw attention away from them and their work. The focus is on their stories and their experience, not yours as the coach. But this always confused me a bit because it seemed to go against one of the more important things Jerry did for me as my coach. He shared his stories. Throughout our coaching relationship together, 
Jerry would step in and share a story from his life, or a struggle, or his dark or confusing moments, even his moments of self-doubt, and each story would ease the struggle for me. When I had what I have come to see now as my first true panic attack last year, Jerry's story of his own attacks eased so much of my stress and anxiousness and shame. There's a magic that occurs when we hear the stories of others, especially when we hear of their struggles. It reminds us that no matter what we face in our lives, we are not alone. Sure, the path may be a bit different, and the circumstances will probably change for each of us, but the core of the experience and how it makes us feel, well, that's been felt before. But even more importantly, when we hear the stories of others and their struggles, it lets us know that our challenges, our struggles, are not proof of our brokenness. They are proof of our humanness. We don't have anxious moments or even panic attacks because we are broken. We have them because we are human and we are in it together. So today's podcast is a chance for all of you to hear more of Jerry's story, thanks to Brad Feld. Brad reached out last year and he said he thought it'd be great to hear more of Jerry's story on the podcast, and we agreed. So I'm excited today to share with you Brad interviewing Jerry. And you'll hear Jerry's origin story, his path to being a VC, his path to becoming a coach, and perhaps, like me, you too will be reminded of your humanness. Enjoy. Being a CEO of a startup is hard. It can be very lonely, with long hours, constant demands, never-ending, unforgiving to-do lists. When do you take time to really step back and look at how things are going for your organization, for your team, for yourself? How are you showing up as a leader? This April, reboot and refresh what it means to be a CEO. In this retreat, you'll be led by the reboot team, Jim Marsden, Heather Jassy, Andy Krissinger, and me, to help you establish a greater awareness of your personal leadership habits. You'll create a customized strategy for being the leader you want to be, all while building a network of peers that you can rely on. To apply and learn more about Reboot's April CEO Founder Bootcamp, go to reboot.io slash bootcamp. Hey, Brad. Hey, Jerry. It's great to see you again. Nice to be sitting next to you. You know, it's just, um, we almost always say this when we see each other. Um, all that floods back inside of me is how how much more I frequently I would love to see you. Just as my friend. Well, I, I, I feel uh, similar with a nuance, which is I don't, I don't struggle with the amount we don't see each other. I just revel in the time that we're together. Yes, that's well said. Well said. So um, normally I would ask people to introduce themselves, but I think folks know who Brad Feld is by now, especially those. But why don't you just say your name again so we have that? Sure. Uh, Brad Feld. I'm a partner at Foundry Group, uh, co-founded Techstars. I've uh, been an investor now for uh, 23 years, which mm. surprises me. Uh, I'm edging up on 52. I have a birthday coming up in a couple of days. And uh, I've known Jerry since 1996. Which is probably longer than some of our listeners are alive. Yeah, I don't want to think about that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going there. So we're going to do something a little different today. Um, And this was actually Brad's idea to 
turn the tables on me and uh, actually put me in the hot seat, if you will. Um, and so today what we're going to do is Brad's really going to kind of lead us through this conversation. But as usual, I'm sure we'll laugh and I'm sure we may cry, but we may also just riff a little bit. So um, maybe strap in for two old men having a conversation. Uh, don't say old yet, just uh, <laughs> older, late, older, later middle age. Um, and just for the record, I turn 54 yeah, okay. in two weeks. Yeah, you, you've, you, you're, you're, you're older at this life thing than me. <laughs> but we will never forget that Mr. Fred Wilson is the oldest of the three of us. Indeed, indeed. And he looks it. Um, you know, as somebody who listens to many uh, of the podcasts, uh, I get, and I, I imagine your listeners get snippets of you. And I think the idea here was um, to try to go deeper on some of those key moments uh, that really, really shaped and formed Jerry Colonna, um, which I think can potentially create even more context about some of the things you do and the magic of how you do it. Uh, and so to start, uh, I'm a very, very deep uh, enthusiast of, or, of origin stories ah. and, and in different contexts. And so the origin story context here mm. uh, is if you think about your current life mm. and your current work at Reboot and the intersection of leadership, entrepreneurship, mm. coaching, mm. and however else one wants to describe it, what do you view the origin story for you? Think back to the beginnings of the pieces that led you down this path. Talk about that a little bit. Well, uh, so I'll acknowledge first and foremost that my ego is dancing right now. Um, <laughs> I can see it. <laughs> I love talking about me. Um, and I'm also a little terrified. So because, and, and, and those who have worked with me, especially at boot camps or workshops, know that what I'm trying to do right now is is just pull myself into the present and, and be really real. So, and I love the fact that you use the phrase origin story because people know I'm obsessed with Marvel characters and having grown up with them and all. So, you know, if we were to turn this into a Stan Lee comic book origin story, it actually would have to begin back in Flatbush, Brooklyn. And, you know, I, I, I'm in the midst of writing a book. Book is due in April. Um, and I will be speaking a lot about this, but in the context of what lessons I have carried forward. So it's not a memoir. It's, it's a book on leadership, but it's a Jerry style. It's a reboot book on leadership. Anyway, the story would have to begin with um, a scared boy a really, really scared little boy uh, who grew up in a really tough neighborhood, um, uh, had violence in the household and violence outside, um, had loving and well-meaning parents who were broken and had had incredibly difficult childhoods of their own. Um surrounded by six siblings who were um, superheroes in their own right, um, which means that, like all the X-Men, they have uh, their own challenges. And um, 
for me, people often talk about me making people cry, making them feel as a kind of superpower, but I actually think it's a different superpower. And I call it the hypervigilance. The I see things. I see an Adam's apple bob when somebody is talking. I see a downward cast of their eyes. Um, and, you know, I write about this a little bit in the book. Um, I remember being a boy and having the sense, you know, my dad was an alcoholic and, um, and there was a lot of changeability in the moods of my mom and dad. And I remember feeling that I could predict the way the evening was going to unfold by how the sound of his steps were in the hallway when he was coming home from work. And the way that shows up, that hypervigilance shows up, is I listen deeply to people. I hear their hearts. When you, when you talk about it and go back to that mm. point in time, you know, and, and wind yourself forward 50 years or yeah. 45 years, um, along the way, and, and something that you and I have talked about plenty, mm. um, when did you start listening to your own heart? Mm. And how did you learn to do that? Because mm. you're, you're extraordinary mm. at listening to other people's hearts. Mm. Um, but for many, mm. that, that sort of ability to do it to themselves, mm. what does that look like for you? Um, well, again, I think it began probably, I mean, the memory that just popped into my head was, I was about 13, 14, and uh, we had, uh, my parents separated after a fight one January night and uh, my mother moved into a house that we had just uh, inherited from my father's parents. My father's mother had just passed and I went to live with her and my younger brother John stayed with my father and my brother Dom and everybody and we sort of were split up for a, a few months. And um, I began um, these incredibly long subway commutes from Queens to Brooklyn, where my high school was. Um, and it would take anywhere from 90 minutes to two hours each way. And um, I think that memory popped into my head in answer to your question was because that's when I began journaling. I would often journal on the subway. That's when I began um really being quiet and listening to uh, everything and paying attention to things in a, in a really deep and profound way. Fast forward, um, you know, like a lot of folks, you know, my, my teenage years were tough. Um, uh, uh, and in my twenties, I, I began to sort of separate myself and really, begin to individuate as an adult. And the capacity to slow down, pay attention to myself, probably personified in the journaling that I did, um, and therapy, 
which I started in my teenage years and continued into my 20s and then took a break and then picked up again in my 30s, um, became just a fundamental part of my life, really in my 30s, as I struggled with the second major depression in my life. And it became, you know, a kind of sit the fuck down and pay attention to what's going on inside. So it became, turn that hypervigilance into, well, what's actually going on for you? And so now it's it's kind of second nature in that I, I open each journaling session with, right now I'm feeling, or some version of that. Mm-hmm. So Powerful. Well, I met you for the first time shortly before you and Fred started Flatiron. Right. And uh, it was, you know, 1996. I was... Uh, making angel investments, intensity um, ventures, intensity ventures, aptly named. <laughs> um, and uh, in that time period, uh, you know, a lot of people know you from Reboot. They know right. you from your coaching. Right. Um, I, my guess is most people know from some of the podcasts that you're an incredibly uh, successful and accomplished venture capitalist. Thank you. Um, how did you wander into becoming a venture capitalist? Oh, well, that's a funny story. So, um, I was, um, in my twenties, um, I, uh, began working for a technology publishing company called CMP Media, which in its various incarnations and through various owners at this point is still operating at some level. And I began working for a magazine called Information Week. I started as a summer intern, and in about four or five years from that, I became the editor of the magazine. I was the number two editorial person. And I was fairly young for this, and we had about 30, 40 employees. Um, And I began to develop a sort of awareness around the tech industry that was uh, more holistic more, uh, more than just like I, I, I did not have a technology background. Unlike you, I did not go to MIT, right? Um, I was an English major. I was a philosophy minor, right? Um, but I was a geek at heart and I just, I just studied and studied and studied. This was relevant because one of the things I was responsible for uh, in my early days as a reporter was our supercomputer beat. <laughs> this is back in the day, and this is for you youngins. This is back in Kendall the day. Kendall Square Research. Kendall Square Research, thinking machines. Um, I went back to control data. I went to Cray Research. I interviewed Seymour Cray. I mean, I understood vector processing, quantum computing, the early uh, uh, work that Marvin Minsky did about mind and, and all. Anyway, you cannot have been studying and thinking about supercomputing in those days without understanding ARPANET, which, again, for you youngins, okay, really was the beginnings of what we now def- define as the internet. In fact, it was really designed to connect all these big honking machines from university to university. And so um, I was there 
as as a an observer, not a participant, but an observer at the birth of uh, uh, packet switch networking and what TCP IP actually means and why it was so revolutionary. This is relevant because as, as I progressed within CMP, I ended up being vice president for uh, editorial technology and I became the, 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 the focal person for what are we going to do beyond print at a time when what we thought was beyond print was petroleum byproduct known as CDs. <laughs> okay. And in that capacity, I met a guy named Dave Weatherall. Because I was running our interactive media group, trying to figure out a strategy beyond print to run on this thing that was emerging. This was even before the World Wide Web protocols were promulgated. And in the same year that uh, Mark Andreessen and his colleagues, when he was an under, he was a graduate student, released the first iteration of the browser. We, within a few weeks were the first to publish a daily newspaper using a browser in HTML. That was in April 1994, I think. Yeah, 94. Um, later that summer, I was recruited by Microsoft to be the uh, head of editorial for this brand new network called MSN. And we're smiling because I don't even think they use that terminology anymore. <laughs> but that was their competitor to AOL and CompuServe. And I ended up turning down that job and going to work as a venture capitalist instead with Dave Weatherall and a tiny group of people with a $35 million venture capital firm. And I didn't know shit from Shinola about venture capital. And that's how I became a venture capitalist. So you spend a lot of time getting your MBA. <laughs> at, at, that, at that point in your venture capital experience, did you know how to open a spreadsheet? I did not. Not only did I not know how to open a spreadsheet, but I remember one time I was, I, I was working with, you know, four or five partners at, at what we called At Ventures, At Simple Ventures. It's still a great name. Um, and uh, it was part of CMG, CMGI. And uh, Dan Nover, who's still active. Hey, Dan, what's up, dude? Uh, who's now at Highland and basically, you know, Mr. Superman, whatever. Love you, man. Uh, I remember bringing a deal in and he said to me, we were talking about the price. I don't even remember the deal itself, but we were talking about price. And he said, well, is it pre or post money? I was like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> he goes, it's a big difference. <laughs> it's like, oh, I don't know. I'm scared. <laughs> it's uh, uh, that that the pre post money story is a fun one uh, because it it winds through uh, the experience of many many. VCs, right. uh, Fred, uh, Fred graciously wrote uh, one of the forwards to the most recent version of Venture Deals. Uh -huh. And in the forward, he tells his version of the <laughs> pre-post money story when he's like, I don't know what that means. Uh, and when he was sent back to his office to try to figure it out. Um, so you, you find yourself uh, in, this, in this world where yeah. it's a sort of collision of technology uh, and finance. Yeah. 
And I remember uh, very, very um, vividly uh, our experience together on the eShare board, right. which was the for- first board we we were on together. And um, I can characterize how I thought of you as a as a uh, co-investor and board member, but I'm curious how you would characterize yourself looking back um, on what your role as a VC investor board member was, even at that formative stage, how you approached it. Well, I think that there were two major thrusts to the way I approached that. And and to be honest with you, it's the same way I approached being a, a reporter. I was insatiably fucking curious. I mean, now that I think about it, if if we want to think about another attribute of my personality that really defines me and has been formative is my insatiable curiosity, right? Do you want me to explain quantum computing? Because I have read enough books to be, I mean, it's like, that's how crazy I am, right? <laughs> and, um, and the second is um, I have always given a shit about people. So... When I think back to eShare, the the uh, what I remember is, um, and I don't know if you know this piece of the, our eShare experience. I, I'll probably jog your memory about it, but we found that company. I found that company. It wasn't called eShare at the time. What was happening was I was walking through the Heinz Convention Center in Boston. Looking, I was at it's like Internet World or some show or something like that, and just looking at shit on screens. And I saw this little window pop up on somebody's screen. Turned out to be Java. It was an early version of a Java chat window opening up in a browser. And I looked at that and I said, what the fuck is that? And the kid standing next to it is a guy named Brad Birnbaum, who, by the way, is CEO of Customer, who is a it's a great little company. I mean, he's at it again. Was like 19 or 20. <laughs> and he was a student at SUNY at, at Stony Brook University. And he's like, oh yeah, well, yeah, I wrote that. It's uh it's uh, it's it's just this new thing called Java, and I'm able to open up a browser, or open up a small window within a I was like, what? What are you doing? He's like, Yeah, well, we're chatting. It's like, you mean like on AOL? And he's like, Yeah. Now, the reason I cite that is because that curiosity is what led me to sort of sit there and say, and I remember saying this when we brought the investment to our investment committee at J.P. Morgan, which was the backers of the original Flatiron Partners, was imagine if every single website that you visited, you could have a chat experience. Well, of course, it's like... It's annoyingly common now, right? <laughs> Hi, I saw that you were browsing. Can I help you? Shut up. Leave me alone. But imagine that experience back then. It's like the web was silent. We actually weren't communicating with each other, except asynchronously. Um, so I saw myself as, I guess in a way, kind of what I do now anyway. You know, Jim Tito was the CEO of eShare, and I think I was his first call of the week, and I think I was his last call of the week. And when he would say, I don't know what to do, Brad's driving me, not Brad Fell, Brad Burnbaum's <laughs> driving me crazy, I would talk. 
I would listen with that same hypervigilance. Yep. Is this, does this resonate? Absolutely. My, my reaction, um, I had been making angel investments at this point. Uh, I hadn't started doing venture investing yet. And, mm-hmm. you know, the way we ended up in that, uh, on that board together was because the very first company I made an angel investment in was a company called NetGenesis. That was your first? The very first oh. with uh, Raj Bhargava. And uh, Will Herman, who is also a longtime friend, was the co-investor with me. Raj and a couple of his friends were the founders of the company. And um, uh, it had been one of the very, very first internet-focused businesses Um, uh, in the search engine history. Of course, you were involved in one of the very first search engines with Lycos. Yeah. Uh, NetGenesis had actually created the very first search engine, Wandex, which, you know, I would like to say manually indexed. Each of, if you're if you're a halt and catch fire uh, watcher, that that whole idea of manually indexing the web that was a correct idea. That's what happened back then. I think the first index had a couple of hundred websites in it. Yep, yep. Um, and uh, we had created, or NetGenesis had created a couple of products, and we had raised uh, some venture money, and it was clear that we had three totally different products going after three totally different markets. Actually, I think it was before we raised the venture money, we raised some, some angel money and then some, some corporate money. And we decided to focus all the energy of the business on a product called what ended up being called net analysis, which was uh, their, their core product. And um, we sold off net threads, net threads right. to eShare. And we sold right. off uh, another product called NetForm to VirtuFlex. Right, right, right. right. So NetThread was a threaded discussion manager. That's right. That's right. And um, uh, I think we got a little, I think NetGenesis got a little bit of eShare equity for it, which yep. someday was worth something, which was yep. pretty cool. And I ended up uh, joining the board with you. And I remember like I, I had some, maybe a year now of board experience, Yep. but I would say it was board experience purely at the seed stage. Yeah, yeah. Right? You know, maybe every now and then I'd bump into a VC and something, but it was almost entirely, you know, me, a couple of the founders, maybe one of the other angel investors. And uh, so I was learning how to be a board member as well. And it was very powerful to me to be on one of my early boards with you Mm. because I think almost everything we did Mm. with with Jim and Brad, uh, we led with uh, the – emotional characteristics mm-hmm. of the business and we led with the functional characteristics of the product mm-hmm. right so it was kind of people and product mm-hmm. was the discussion and yeah mm-hmm. there was finance underneath it mm-hmm. but it wasn't a finance led conversation and and some of it was stage of the company but i remember you know several critical moments in time including you know when we ended up selling the business um where there was just incredible emotional intensity mm. around certain things and and participating with you and watching you not being a, an arbitrary calming influence mm. but also not being at the other end of the spectrum mm. i wrote a blog post recently that you know do you do you uh, generate stress or do you absorb stress i remember that it was a good post right and you know, in that context where there's an enormous amount of anxiety and stress around the system mm-hmm. because big decisions being made and they're hard and they're mm-hmm. challenging or whatever. And uh, you absorbing an enormous amount of that stress mm-hmm. and not metabolizing it, making it go away, mm-hmm. but, uh, but holding it mm-hmm. and allowing there to be space to have thoughtful conversation mm-hmm. versus uh, emotional reaction. Mm-hmm. And when I think about my 
interactions with you and work with you today in, in your coaching role and going to reboot camps and mm-hmm. uh, boot camps and, and seeing others. Uh, that's one of the magic gifts uh, that, that both you have, but you also you model for people, which is this notion that, yeah, things are fucked up all the time, <laughs> like every day, <laughs> continually. Mm-hmm. And you can either just react to it uh, or you can deal with it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't make the anxiety and the stress disappear. Mm-hmm. But if you can just hold it, mm-hmm. right, the sort of classic meditation, like name it. Okay, I have anxiety about that. Yeah. Uh, you're not trying to eliminate it. Yeah. But you're trying to sort of acknowledge it so that you can then concentrate on, and what do we need to do? I, I'm, I'm blown away by the fact that you're saying that you saw this in me going back so far. So, again, I want to acknowledge um, how... Sweet and tender that feels for me. Um, intellectually, I, there are there there are a few things I know to be true about the way humans are wired, and one of the things I know to be true is that we are highly emotional and feeling sentient being. And I also know to be true that we are socialized to pretend we're not. Um, everything's okay. Everything's okay. And then what happens in those boardrooms, I think, um, and I could not have articulated it then the way I can articulate it now, because then I was just acting on pure instinct. But I think what, what was, what happens in boardrooms like that is when, and I loved your framing about people and product. I think that there are two things that I would get excited about as an investor, people and product, not the potential of a financial manipulation. You know, uh, I'm not actually drawn to investing in Bitcoin because there's no people and I don't really have any affinity for the product. And there are people who love it. God bless you. Maybe it will be $100,000 someday. I don't know. But I'll tell you what I love. Humans and the things that they create. And so what happens, I think, in a boardroom is that we make this investment. We step into that place. Um, We are, for the most part, I think most investors are drawn to humans and products. But then they get scared. Because they carry this like, oh, my God, what happens if the company fails? And the same thing happens to the CEO. Oh, my goodness, what happened? Right. And so then what happens is nobody's actually naming what's going on. And then it grows. And then we cover it with a kind of forced march fixation on what we consider to be pragmatic things. So let's turn our attention, right? The product isn't working. Our head of sales just quit. So let's turn our attention to the spreadsheet. Well, the answer is not actually in the spreadsheet. The answer is in the human bodies that are sitting around a particular table. So let's make sure that those human bodies can be as as present and as capable and as resources as they can be so that they can solve the ongoing, ever, never-ending problems of running a damn business. Yep. And that's what I think 
I did. It's totally what you did. And it's the way, like when I, when I think about you and I describe you to other people mm. and I model my own behavior in a way that I think is most powerful, when I think about the influences on me, yeah. right, in terms of that behavior, and I've had, you know, a number of, of influences, right? You're at the top of the list, somebody like Len Fassler, yes. who you know a little bit. And you've always spoken about Len, but go ahead. I'm Who's, sorry. It's the same kind of thing. It's at the top of the list. Like it's, a, it's somebody who, and, and in Len's case, uh, you know, he would care less about the product. All he cared about was the people, wow. right? And so it, it sort of orients your one's frame of reference in a way that's different mm-hmm. than the archetype mm-hmm. um, that I think people expect from an investor. And it was really interesting in that time period, right? In the mid to late nineties when the internet was a new thing and there was, you know, at first nobody understood it. And even in 1997, when we mm-hmm. raised what was uh, uh, so the first sort of independent soft bank fund that then turned into Mobius Venture Capital over time. Like I remember having meetings with potential investors who would say, what's the internet? Like, why oh, do yeah. I care about the internet? How are you going to make money on the internet? Yeah. And, you know, our joke about it that, you know, started in maybe late 2000s between you and me was like, yeah, we were right in the late 90s. We were just 10 years too early, right? <laughs> right exactly. Right? As you start to see things that, you know, were invented or created for the first time in the late 1990s, which, by the way, were not necessarily new intellectual constructs, but right. using the internet as a distribution was different. Right. Um, the attraction of that away from, pe- from people to engage both investors and entrepreneurs yeah. – who started caring only about the financial outcome yeah. and lost sight of the people, the people and, the and the product. Yeah. Um, that, that's a touch point for me that I've carried through you know, ups and downs and successes and failures mm-hmm. um, in that ultimately those are the drivers, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's those two things. And, and I got to say that when I, when I go back to the period of time in the 90s, the two people that probably influenced me the most on that were you and Len. So yeah. thank you. Well, I'm honored to hear you say that because I, I admire you as a, as a, you know, beyond our friendship, I admire you as a, uh, just as a wise business person. And I see the way you navigate um, board situations and difficult um, uh, situations. You know, I, I work with some of your portfolio company CEOs and I, I feel your influence there. So to, to know that that resonance is there. Let, let, me, let me ask you a question, which I promise is not your origin story question, <laughs> but it, it's something I'm carrying today because just, just, relevant shifts that I've felt in the, in, in the landscape. There's a, there's a question I'm holding and a belief that I have that's been shaken lately. And the question, the belief I have that's been challenged is I fundamentally believe, going back to the people side of this equation, that human beings who show up as leaders fully and authentically themselves are more trusting and more trustworthy and that uh, in the end make better CEOs. And it, I haven't really let, let that belief go. I still fundamentally know that to be true. But um, I'm curious to know how you feel about that. 
um, and how that might have evolved over the last few years. Because, I mean, think about this in the context of what I'm trying to do, what we're trying to do at Reboot, right? right? We had this little tagline we play with, which is better humans make better leaders. And, you know, am I crazy here? I'll answer it two ways, because for me, it's it's uh, got a couple of levels to mm-hmm. it. Um, one is the direct question, mm. which is, do better humans make better leaders? And mm. my direct answer is, I have no idea. Mm. No idea. Mm. Um, uh, and I would suggest that there are probably leaders who are incredibly highly effective, mm. who are not particularly great humans. Yes. And there are also great humans who are terrible leaders mm. or ineffective leaders. They try to be leaders and are ineffective. So like I, I can, and I can, you know, you can describe them, right? So yep, there's a yep, spectrum. Yep. So I don't actually know in the absolute sense, Yep, which is true. What I do know is that as I've gotten older, my interest in spending the minutes of my life that tick away, mm. uh, which will end mm. at some point, hopefully far in the future, but could end tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to spend minutes with people who I don't feel are good humans. Mm. Um, and I have to do some of that. That's mm-hmm. the nature of existing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but my goal is to minimize that across all dimensions. Mm. And, you know, I could be uh, misanthropic and mm. decide that, uh, okay, well, the best way to minimize that is to not expose myself to other humans. Mm. And I've chosen a different approach. Mm. And the different approach is I try to maximize my time with people who I think are good humans. Mm. Again, my definition and I try to incorporate that into the functional activity that I do. And so that is a strong underlying validation of the idea that I have a belief that in what I'm doing, I can create whatever success means, mm-hmm. right? Everybody gets to define their own version of it or progress or mm-hmm. accomplishment or achievement or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the context of having maximizing my time with people who I consider to be good humans. Mm. So there's this optimization dynamic. Mm. I think that people have, especially you see it very much in, in, in the venture world. Um, I think it's true for individual entrepreneurs. I think it's true across all people. And it's the optimization that is the balance between this external definition of success, accomplishment, whatever, and the internal. Mm. And the words are easy, but the behavior, for me at least, is incredibly challenging. Mm. It's super easy to say words like, yeah, I don't really care about that external stuff. I only really care about how I feel and what I'm doing and who I spend yeah, my time with. Yeah, motivation right? and stuff like, like, like that. Like the words yeah. are easy, and, and the words for me are foundational. Mm. Um, and then somebody takes a shot at you. Yeah. And then something that you're involved in blows, blows up. Blows up. Oh, yeah. And all of a sudden you're worrying about how somebody else is going to think about you yeah. because of your involvement in it. Or you're not able to own your place in the thing that blew up yeah. because it will reflect poorly on you. Yeah. Or something succeeds and you, you, you 
for whatever reason, claim more of it. Yep. Even though, no, I don't need the validation. Mm-hmm. Oh, but here I'll, I'll grab a little of it. Yeah. Right? So the the disconnect between it, it's not a, it's, I like to say to people, it's not savant-like. Mm-hmm. It's an aspirational goal that then informs behavior. Mm. So to, to make it less abstract and to think about it in, in your context, you've built your entire philosophy of your business mm-hmm. around that premise. Mm-hmm. Um, has anybody ever gone through Reboot that wasn't a good person? Mm. Yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> right? And, and have you ever coached somebody who you, oh, yeah. you would categorize as not a good person that the relationship, that was a coaching relationship, didn't end up in a defined success characteristic? So it's not that the goal is flawlessness or perfection. It's this aspirational goal of being there. And when I think about my own emotional constitution around the work that I do and what nourishes me versus what takes, uh, uh, you know, consumes me, the nourishing, even incredibly stressful, difficult situations, things that aren't working, failure, surprises, et cetera, is in those contexts where the people working together own their own decisions and mistakes and are trying hard me included, and are trying hard to find a good answer or path forward mm-hmm. versus all, you know, we could spend a lot of time talking about the other behavior, right? Whether it's defensiveness or deflection or passive aggressive or whatever. The other part of it is, and you know, I, I'm going to shift back to a particular moment in your time, in, in your life. There are moments where the magnitude of the stressors mm-hmm. that are external uh, can be overwhelming. And, uh, and some of those are personal, right? A family member, you know, dying, a family member committing suicide, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, your own health and uh, issues. But, it's, you know, just even in a business context, um, you know, 2001 mm. was, was, and 2002 was, an was, was a really, really fucking rough time. Yeah. Right. And, you know, for you and, and for all of us, you and Fred, who were, I, I can't remember whether it was Calcanus's magazine or some other magazine. Yeah, Silk, that, yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. Silicon that, Alley Reporter. I crowned you the, the king of the, the kings of the internet or something. Mm. And, you know, to, to be there and then to be, you know, at the bottom of, I don't know whether every one of the companies that you were an investor in was in a, mm. in a death spiral. Most of the ones I was an investor in at that time were in a death spiral. Yeah. A few of them. Various levels of the death spiral. That's right. A few of them didn't die and a few of them ended up being successful, but an awful lot of them that, yep. you know, months earlier. Yep. You know, seemed like massive success. Seemed like yeah. it could be great success. And in fact, some were. Yeah. Right. $50 stock prices with companies that go bankrupt. Right. Um, and in that period of time, sort of coming out the end of it, you had a huge personal transformation. Mm-hmm. And I think it'd be interesting for you to talk about that, not the mechanics necessarily, but, you know, from VC to that deep, deep, and you know, you and I have both talked openly about our own struggles with mm-hmm. depression, to that deep depression that you had, mm-hmm. and then how you came out of it and started down a path of reinventing yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'll, ha- I, I'll be happy to go there, but I, but I want to circle back to one of the questions and observations that we, we joked about before, about whether or not good people... Um, have been coached and, you know, were all the people good and all that? Uh, Because I've been sitting with that for a few minutes. 
I think one of my fundamental beliefs, which um, came out of, in some ways, um, that very same period is that, and I usually phrase it this way, with clients, most people aren't sociopaths. Meaning that, I know this is going to be controversial, what I'm about to say, but 99.9% of humanity are good people. Good people do shitty things all the time, myself included. Um, If you are, you know, the phrase I often use is radically self, radical self-inquiry. If you're, if you've got that inquiry process and if you remain curious about human beings, you can pretty much with compassion understand and therefore protect yourself from the bad things that even good people do. Um, and that's a really important statement because it's a hopeful statement too. It's 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 one of the things that I learned in that terrible period that we were talking about. Um, because I can't speak to the period of leaving venture capital and wandering in the desert of my own soul without mentioning one of the most profound teachings that I ever uh, received, which I, in in reading the stories of the Buddha basically boiled down to this. I know I am good because I am human. And only human beings of all sentient beings are capable of enlightenment. Now, and because I'm capable of enlightenment, I am fundamentally good. Now, there's a, there's a logical premise in there, which you have to believe in the capacity to go, to be enlightened <laughs> for the whole logic to work. Yeah. But that, when I descended into that period of depression, um, which left me in a place of saying, fuck it, I'm out of here. And, you know, when I look at your success, when I look at Fred's success, when I look at, you know, all these pikers who came after us. I, I, I have to laugh at my own, like, what am I, an idiot? You know, why did I? But on the other hand, I really wouldn't have had it any other way. Because what I learned about myself from that time period, that I am fundamentally good, even though every week I struggle with the question of, am I a good enough man? Am I a good enough father? Am I a good enough partner? Am I a good man? Even though I struggle with that question, almost always I can find that resilient place of, oh, right, I'm a good person. So this is a sort of roundabout way of getting to your question, which was, what happened? Well, what happened was, I got whacked on the side of the head with a two-by-four. Or the way I often think about it is like my soul reached up and grabbed me by the throat and said, not now, motherfucker. (laughs) You are sitting and you are going to deal with the stuff that you have denied in your own life. And you're going to sit still until you figured it out. And it wasn't about other people. It was about 
me not being able to face myself anymore. And out of that experience, I took the skills and insights and capacity that I developed as a boy to survive. And every day I try to make somebody else's life a little easier. Yeah, that's great. And it's, it's powerful for me uh, to reflect on what in some ways uh, was not a gap in our relationship. It was a period of time where I didn't see you very much. Yeah. And some of it was because uh, you were working on you. Yeah. Uh, and some of it was because I was working on me. Yeah. Um, I don't talk a lot about the time frame between 2003 and 2007 um, for no specific reason other than uh, it's not the front of mind time frame for me. Sure. Um, but that time frame was a really difficult period of time. Yeah. Because it was, and but very important because it was foundational in redefining my own relationship with what I did and why I did it. Yeah. Coming out of a period of time of, you know, much success. Yeah. With then uh, extreme, in, in some dimensions, failure. And at a point, I mean, you know, that period of time we were both in our late 30s. So, you know, sort of moving into 40, early 40s, like right. starting to think about, okay, right, I'm not the youngest kid in the room anymore. Yeah. And... You know, I'm not the bright, shiny, whatever. Yep. And yeah, I've done well and I'm fine. But is this what I want to do and how I want to do it? Yeah. And who I want to do it with? Yeah. And I remember uh, it's causing me to think about a walk that we had uh, in Boulder. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you had been out here for um, a board meeting at uh, – Shambhala, when Shambhala you're on, Mountain Center. Yeah, yep. when you're on the board. So that must have been 2007. Yeah, probably 10 years ago. Yeah, 2007-ish yeah. is what my yep. guess was. Yep. And, and you were kind of reemerging. Yes. Right? You were, you were getting back involved. and, and you, I had just started coaching maybe a year before. Yep. That's right. And it was a beautiful day, like, mm -hmm. you know, lots of boulder days. It was a little mm -hmm. bit, you know, a little bit cool, mm -hmm. but sunny and, mm -hmm. and crisp feeling. And uh, we didn't really have any reason to go anywhere or do anything. We just went for one of these walks. Mm. And you were catching me up, mm -hmm. right? And it was a little bit, maybe both of us were catching each other up, but it was a lot. I remember it being you catching me oh, up. Yep. Um, and in that moment, like, there was a different embodiment of you there mm. right so it was you know a person went in you know the building and four years later came out the essence the same mm -hmm. but the ability and willingness to look inward mm -hmm. and work on yourself had changed and it's you know kind of interesting like when when i thought about i asked the question earlier sort of when did you start mm. you know working on your own heart mm. for me and not knowing you as a kid, mm -hmm. like I would have pointed to that moment. Mm. Um, and, and that's not because you didn't do it earlier. Like I remember a time in your and Fred's office mm -hmm. in New York and 
Uh, I was working on a deal and trying to do this deal with, if you remember, First Virtual. Oh, yeah. And, um, I mean, it was a messy deal. And uh, I was uh, at your desk. You had given me your office to work on. And I was it was a standing desk before standing desks were cool. And I can can remember it visually. Like, it was a little – it was dark. I don't like the lights, but you had a little desk lamp that was on. And and I was on the phone and – you know, it had gotten dark outside New York, and I remember it's like fuck. Right at the end of the day, yeah. I was so worn from not just that, but probably the other nineteen things that were all fucked up that day. Yeah, and um, I came out of the room, and uh, we were going to go to dinner or something. And and before we sort of, I'm like, okay, I'm ready, let's go. And bef- and you sort of stopped me. Mm-hmm. You didn't like you know hold up your hand and say stop, but kind of mm-hmm. stopped me physically. Mm-hmm. And you could see that, you know, like, slow down, Feld. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so even then, like, that was in your yeah. in your soul, in your nature, even with your co-investors or even with your friend who was working on something that had nothing to do with you. Yeah, yeah. And you gave so much of your energy in those moments. Mm. And so when I had that walk with you in 2007, it was very powerful for me because it was like, all right, he's reclaimed his own energy. Oh, well, thank you for that. I, I think... I remember, thank you for sharing that memory because I remember that desk and I remember saying to the designer, so I want to be up to stand. So I need this like thing that, you know, <laughs> we didn't call them stand-up desks at the time. It was just like this thing. Um, and I remember that space fondly. That was our the Flatiron's first offices. Um, I, you know, I think that in the period of time, which was kind of my hibernation from which I then emerged in the walk that you saw, I think what happened was I took the skills that I had developed earlier as a child and I went deep with them. And um, uh, it was a time period where I read probably three or four books a week. It was a time period where I, uh, I sat by a fireplace and wrote for hours at a time. It's a time period where uh, I learned to meditate it's a time period where um, I remember I remember the depression ending, and I remember uh, I went on medication, antidepressants. Oh, I want to say two thousand and two, um, and I remember coming out around the beginning of two thousand and six into two thousand and seven. So right around this time period. And I remember um, tapering off the medications and talking to my therapist and saying, I feel like I've come home to a house that I used to occupy, but it's all different. It's brighter and it's airier. And I wasn't describing the lifting of the depression. I was describing a re- claiming of me mm-hmm. with um, a more solid understanding of who the hell am I. Um, now, saying that, and, and just speaking about the two of us for a moment, anybody who's listening is going to laugh because we're both talking about a time period when we both, when we each turned 40. Mm-hmm. Okay? And not to 
be stereotypical here, but men at 40 learn to close softly doors to rooms they will not be going back to. That's the beginning of a poem by Donald Justice. I close softly doors to rooms that I was not going to go back to. It wasn't that I wasn't a good investor or that I wasn't intellectually curious and that I didn't enjoy it. It's just it didn't fit me. You know, I went on a walk this morning with a mutual friend of ours. I won't say his name, but we were talking about a new fund that he wants to do. And I was like, here's what you need to do. And then I looked at him. I said, damn, I still got it. And as long as I know I still got it, I don't have to do it. And that difference is really important because what you saw on that walk was a guy who was saying, oh, I know what I have to do. I have to lean into this person that I am. Because I remember a moment, and I've said this before, but I'll I'll, I'll recall it again. I remember a moment where you helped me enormously. It was about my first or second year at Flatiron, and I was just really struggling because not only did I not know the difference between pre- and post-money valuation, there were just numbers flying around the screen, and I'm just a fucking poet. I have no idea what y'all talking about. And you said to me, wonderful advice. You said to me, I kept talking about comparing myself. And we talked about this in a podcast once, but it's worth repeating. I kept comparing myself to other VCs, including Fred. And you said, stop trying to be a VC like everybody else. Be the VC that you are. Be Jerry. That was so liberating. You mean I was allowed to step into a boardroom and turn to the CEO and before we got started with the meeting, turn to him and go, how you doing? You know, frankly, the way you and I started this conversation today, we didn't record it, but how are you? And you said, I, I, you know, it's tough. I had a tough phone call. I'm just going to take a minute and breathe. You know, you may look at me and say, I taught you that, but dude. <laughs> and we taught each other. Amen. Which is what brothers do. Yep. Right? This is what we do. This is community. I have always felt you pick me up when I needed to be lifted. And I hope that you will forever feel me pick you up when you need to be lifted. I, I always have. And it's a, uh, it, it's a great blessing and honor. Mm. And... One of the things that I think is uh, so much an honor about it is to think of all of the people in my world, you know, whether I'm an investor in them or colleague or work with them, that when I when I look at their willingness to invest in themselves, mm. right? And the phrase radical inquiry, mm-hmm. radical self-inquiry is a very common one within, <laughs> within my world. Um, the, the idea, it comes back to this question about good people, mm. right? This idea that people are fundamentally willing to work on themselves mm. and that they're there for each other, mm-hmm. especially when there's a struggle. Yeah. And in the world of that we live in, there is always a struggle. There is always struggle. <laughs> and if you don't feel like there's a struggle and you need to find one, 
Um, just drop one of us an email and we'll point you out a struggle. <laughs> um, right? I mean, that that, that essence of, yeah. of being there no matter what. And, you know, somebody could say cynically, well, you guys sound like you're just super happy friends all the time and everything's awesome. It's like, yeah, we, we have arguments and we have our bad moments. And, yeah. you know, I'm sure I've said things to you that you've walked away from like, fuck him. And uh, I can't recall any. Yeah, yeah, uh, dig. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there was one somewhere. And, you know, those moments. Probably that, when you turned down an investment yeah, that I was go. trying to get you. <laughs> there you go. Or, you know, that moment where, you know, you, you felt like, oh, you know, I wish I hadn't wandered into this thing that, you know, Brad's involved in or vice versa. Oh, I wish I had, you know, I did this because of Jerry, but I wish I hadn't because mm-hmm. now I'm stuck in this thing that I don't want to be involved in or whatever. Yeah. Right. Like those moments. And then you let them go. Like, all right, well, I'm here. Yeah. And I'm here with somebody who, you know, I love right. and I trust and I'm game to work with. And all right, let's figure it out. Right. And and that, like having that roll through over and over again, I think it's a reflection of being willing to do the work on yourself. I agree. Right. Because if you're unwilling to do the work on yourself, well, it's not my fault you're here. You chose, you made that decision. Like, you know, you, you, yeah, don't, don't. Look at me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Even though I said to you, oh, yeah, this is going to be great. You're going to love it. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. Right. Whatever that dynamic is. And and I, I like that that gets amplified throughout my world from you and from Reboot and from your partners at Reboot, because I think it makes the, the really good people even better. Mm. Well, I, uh, thank you for, for saying all of that. And, uh, I said before that my ego was dancing. Now my ego is uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, and then when, I... When, we, when your ego gets tired, you get a little schlumpy. <laughs> <laughs> your, your ego's That's like, what, enough no, of this already. Like, oh, I'm tired now. I need to take a nap. <laughs> what I would close with is just this notion that... Um, I have been helped by so many wise people in my life. And if I can just pay them back by helping somebody else. I mean, I know it sounds trite and pedantic or whatever the hell. and But it's like the minute you say things like that, like the picture of my therapist pops into my head. Mm-hmm. who's 93, right? The woman I work with for so many years. Or Ani Pema Chodron. Or... Uh, Sharon Salzberg or, you know, Parker Palmer, these, these people whose writings and their presence have reached in and said, here's a hand, here's a way out. Um, you know, someone was asking me this morning, you know, how do I pay you back? I said, just keep paying it forward. Yeah. You know, when, I, when I'm dust and I'm dried up and I'm dead and whatever, Please, just keep paying it forward. That's a great answer. So, Well, thanks for doing this. Well, thank thanks, you thanks for, for doing you. this. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all three seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash signup so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. How long till my soul gets it right? Can any human being ever reach that kind of light? I call on the resting 
CEOs who coach are more effective leaders. The effectiveness of a leader is measured by the output of the team they lead. With directive leadership, that output is limited to the thinking of the CEO. When a CEO learns fundamental coaching skills, they unlock the thinking of their entire team, resulting in a higher performing and a more scalable team. In a one-day workshop at the Reboot Learning Lab in San Francisco, you'll learn the fundamentals of communication grounded in neuro-linguistic programming. Join us to transform how you listen, ask questions, and learn to bring the best out of those you lead. To see all of our 2018 Coaching 101 dates, head to reboot.io slash coaching101.